0: Can you turn in then to the letter of Paul to the church of Rome and chapter 7. Romans and chapter 7. Now as usual I'm going to do an introduction which will be of benefit to our visitors so they know what we're doing and where we've come from before we actually get on to look at the subject for this morning. We've been studying this letter for many weeks now, we've been doing that because this is one of the most important books in the whole of the scriptures. Certainly if you look at its impact on the history of the church, you will find there is no other part of scripture that has had a greater effect upon the Christian church and the surrounding world than this letter and its contents. It is therefore of great importance not just that we read it, but as with any other part of Scripture, that we also understand it. We've seen that Paul is writing to this church prior to a planned visit. He was hoping to visit them. That was his plan. His plans, of course, came to nothing and things were completely changed. He did end up in Rome eventually, but not as he had expected. But he's seeking to expound his gospel so that his readers, the people in Rome, would understand what his message was. So when he arrived, he could get straight into talking about important things and not have to spend a long time laying the groundwork. <coughs> Excuse me. So he begins to explain his gospel and he gives us, if you like, his text in verses 16 and 17. And these two verses that's in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, are the basis, the foundation, upon which the whole of the rest of the letter is written. And he begins to explain to us why it is only those who have faith who are the ones who are right with God. And so in verse 18 of chapter 1 through to chapter 3 and verse 20, He shows us in about 63 or 64 verses that all men, everywhere, and perhaps I should add women as well, without exception, are under the power of sin, are under the wrath of God, and are in danger of imminent judgment, whether they're grossly immoral, whether they're moral, or whether they're religious, they're the three characteristics of people that Paul deals with. Whichever group you fall into, You are condemned. You are under the wrath of God. You are bound under sin. And in desperate need of salvation. 63, 64 verses. You can count it up and find out exactly what the right number is. Paul then gives us the gospel. The solution to the problem of sin. In six verses. Chapter 3 verse 21. Chapter 3 verse 26. (coughs) And there he says... That sin is dealt with and a righteousness is provided from God that meets all the needs of every man in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ by his life has purchased a perfect righteousness and by his death has appeased God's anger against sin. And so now all who believe in Jesus Christ and them only enjoy the benefits of Christ's life and death and are forgiven by God and are right with God and on the day of judgment will have the perfect righteousness that they need to pass the test Paul then goes on and he shows in chapter 4 of Romans that this is not some new teaching that he has concocted this isn't something that has suddenly been foisted upon the world but rather this goes right the way back to the beginning and he refers to Abraham and to David, the two great heroes of the Old Testament, and he shows that these two men also were justified on the basis of what they believed, not on the basis of what they did. And so therefore, it's not new, this is thoroughly biblical, it's thoroughly Old Testament, men are made right with God on the basis of their belief, not on the basis of their actions. Chapter 5, he speaks about the fruits of justification by faith. He says, we know peace with God. We know great blessings in our souls. The greatest of all is in verse 5, that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so all believers, all true believers, have the Spirit of God in their hearts and know something of the love of God. They have had an experience of God's grace in their souls. And anyone without such an experience of God cannot be a Christian. He then goes on and talks about the more objective side of things. And he's giving assurance and comfort. Verses 6 to 11 where he explains that Christ died for sinners when they were ungodly. When they were wicked. When they were corrupt, depraved, sinners. That's what God did for us when we were like that. Well if God did that for us then and now having, Christ having done that, now we've become God's friends, how much more will God do for us now that we're his friends and how much more certain are we of being finally delivered from the judgment to come that Christ has done all these things for us now people would ask in their minds and this is a characteristic of Paul as he writes he makes statements and then those statements would raise questions in people's minds and this would raise the question in people's mind but you keep saying it's all in Christ it all depends on what Christ has done and we've got to come to him and it's on the basis of his work his life his death how come this one man can benefit so many people Well, supposing that he really did do so much for so many people, but supposing it was only for 10,327 people, suppose I'm number 10,328, will it still be a benefit to me? Is there sufficient benefit in his life and death? And Paul says, well, it's quite simple. You see that what Christ has done and his benefits come to us on the basis of imputation, because that is how we all became sinners. There was one man, Adam, who committed one sin, and that one sin has condemned our whole human race. It's been imputed to us. He was our representative, just as John Major is the representative of everybody in this country, whether we like it or not. And so when... Go and visit Iraq, and you get thrown into prison for seven years or ten years, as the case may be, depending upon whether you walked across the border or went on a bicycle, it seems. Then they are there because they're British. And they say, But John Major has bombed our country, so we're going to put you away. And you might say, But I didn't agree to that. I had nothing to do with that. Wasn't my decision. Too bad. You're British. In you go. The decisions of John Major and his actions are imputed to you. The decisions and the actions and the sins of Adam or the sin of Adam has been imputed to you. and So you are a sinner because you are descended from Adam and are united with him. And That's why Christ can affect so many because then the question is are you united to Jesus Christ? And if we're united to Jesus Christ All the benefits of his life and death are imputed to us. They're credited to us. And Paul finishes off the chapter by saying that such is the grace of God that the greater our sin and the more we sin, the more sin abounded, the more God's grace abounded. And God is seen to be so gracious in forgiving people for all their sins, no matter how great or small they may be. And usually our sins are greater than we ourselves perceive them. Now that of course raises a question. And so Paul then goes on to deal with that question. And in fact he deals with four questions that follow on in a string. And we've looked at the first one, in chapter six, verse one, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? What do you mean, the more I sin, the more God is gracious, so therefore I can carry on and sin with a high hand and therefore God will be seen to be more gracious in forgiving them. Excuse me. The answer is not at all. Because we've died to sin. Having died to sin, we can't live in it. Having died to sin, having been united with Christ, we are united with Christ in all his benefits and all his blessings. And now we're free from sin. It no longer dominates us. A non-Christian doesn't have a choice. They sin. Because that is their nature. But a person who is a Christian who has been united with Christ, has been delivered from sin, and sin no longer dominates them. Paul says that. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Therefore, don't sin. You have the choice. And that makes you all the more guilty when you do sin. But thank God we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. So he says in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What shall we say then? Another objection. Shall we sin because we are under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Some people might have said in response to what Paul said, right, we're not under the law anymore, we're now under grace, so therefore we can carry on sinning because grace is what rules us and not the law. So it doesn't matter if we break the law anymore, we're not under it, we're under grace, let's go off and sin says, no, you can't do that. This is what we looked at last week. Because you're a slave. You're a slave of one of two masters. A slave of sin, or a slave of righteousness. A slave of the devil, or a slave of God. Who is your master? Well, you demonstrate who your master is by the one you obey. And if you persist in sin, it doesn't matter what you say. You say, I'm a Christian. I love God. I like to do Christian things. If you sin persistently, then your master is the devil, and you are not a Christian at all. But if you seek in all things to do what is right, though you may occasionally fall, then that is a demonstration that you are a Christian. You are showing that by who your master is. And so that brings us down to today to chapter 7. We are not going to look at all of chapter 7, One of the reasons being that this is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, controversial chapters in the whole of the scriptures. The reason for that is because of verse 13 and following. Who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he he talking about himself before or after he was converted? Is he talking about himself before or after he received the Spirit? Or is he talking about someone entirely different? And there are at least four clearly defined and mutually exclusive views as to what Paul is saying there. We haven't got that far, so if you're very keen to know the answer, you're not going to discover it this morning. You'll have to come back in two weeks' time. What we're looking at this morning is verses 1 to 6. And this is a further explanation of his answer to the objection in verse 15 of chapter 6. The next objection is in verse 7 of chapter 7, and the last objection is in verse 13. And if you want to understand these two chapters, which aren't easy to understand, you have to understand Paul is answering these four objections. It's a parenthesis. This isn't Paul going straight on in a a nice line, going through an argument. He's got to a particular point at the end of chapter 5, and he's got to take a detour to answer these objections before he can come back again to his main argument in chapter 8. So these are, if you like, a parenthesis, but a necessary one. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's dealing with this second objection. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Can we live a life of sin knowing that because we're living under grace, we're okay? And well, this is the second half of his answer. And he answers by means of an illustration we've had the illustration of slavery already now he talks about marriage now he's not tying slavery in with marriage please don't think that in some ways marriage is slavery in that you're stuck with it but in other ways it's completely different those of you that aren't married you talk to those who are married and they'll say well it has it's downs but it's ups more than make up for it he's talking here about marriage and he's taking an illustration from real life and he's saying that marriage is for life Now we know from other parts of scripture there are exceptions they should be rare exceptions there are exceptions but he's talking generally marriage is for life if you get married you should go into it thinking there's only one way I'm going to get out of this either I'm going to die or they're going to die one or the other, I'm not suggesting, but it's one or the other, that's the only way you get out of marriage, that one of the partners of the marriage dies, that's Paul's whole argument, and if you go off and marry someone else, when your partner is still living, then you are called either an adulteress or adulterer, a bigamist, or Elizabeth Taylor. One of those, I've got nothing against Elizabeth Taylor I should add, but I thought that might plant that firmly in your minds. But it's one of those, if you get married to someone, when you're already married, you're either an adulteress, an adulterer, or a bigamist, or if you want to go the whole hog and be a real Mormon then you'll be a polygamist and you'll have a multitude of wives it never seems to work the other way around for some reason but the only way you're going to escape is by the death of one of the partners what Paul says here is that we as we are born as we come into the world we are by nature married to the law from the moment of your birth you are married to the law And sad to say, this is a loveless marriage. But you are stuck with it. You cannot get out of this. The only way in which you can be freed from the law is if the law dies. And the law doesn't die. The law goes on and on and on, even after Ariston washing machines have been thrown Onto the scrapping. It is perpetual; it never, ever changes. And being married to the law, you are stuck with its requirements. Do this and live. Don't do this and perish. And that is the problem for the vast majority of people in the world. They are married to the law. And they can find no escape from its just requirements and its just consequences. We're stuck in that situation. And the problem for us is because of sinful human nature, what does the law do? What does Paul say in verse 5? But when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The effect of the law was to stimulate sin. Now, out there we have some grass. And it's not the best lawn in the world, but it's not bad. If we wanted to make sure that that lawn became threadbare, we wanted to make sure that that was going to become all cut up and disgusting and kill off all the grass. All we have to do would be to put up a little sign, which said, "Do not walk on the grass," and you could guarantee that within six months all the grass would be dead because all the local kids would see the sign and say, "Why not? I'm going to walk on the grass," and they would, and they'd kill it. And that's the effect of sin with the law, whenever there's a law sin in the heart says I'm going to break that law when the law says you shall not commit adultery in the heart sin says I'm going to commit adultery when sin says uh, when the law says do not steal sin in the heart says I'm going to steal when the law says you shall not murder I'm going to murder and you might not go out and stick a knife in someone but you will hate them You might bear false witness and do all manner of things in your hearts. But that's the effect of the law upon sinful nature. It stirs up within us sinful passions and sinful desires and sometimes sinful actions. And the consequence of all these sins that we commit, stimulated by the law, is death. Because although at the end of the last chapter the wages of sin... Sin always pays its wages. Don't have to worry about that. Is death. In the Bible, the word death doesn't merely mean a cessation of existence. It doesn't merely mean that the body ceases ceases to function. It speaks about that eternal death in that place that is variously described as a pit of fire, hell, continuous consumption, etc., the judgment of God forever that is the consequence of being married to the law and so people should be throwing their arms up in horror and saying but how can we escape can't we go and get divorced no you can't get divorced from the law the law will not allow you to do it there is no way that you can be divorced from the law your only hope is that the law dies or you die one or the other what is the glorious thing about the gospel the glorious thing about the gospel as we've seen already in chapter 6 is that if we are united to Jesus Christ we die verse 4 of chapter 6 therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we should walk in newness of life for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death you see as soon as we believe in Christ we become united to him we become joined to him and all the things that are true of Christ are true of us Christ has died we have died Christ has been raised from the dead We've been raised from the dead. And so, therefore, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we have died. And because we have died, that marriage to the law has ended, it has ceased. And so now we can go and marry someone else. Because we've died. That's Paul's argument. Verse 4 in chapter 7 Therefore my brethren you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. So you've got to be married to someone. You're either married to the law or you're married to someone else. Now who is it we're married to? You may be married to another even to him who was raised from the dead. Now can we possibly imagine who that person is who's been raised from the dead? We are married to Jesus Christ. In being united to Christ, we've died with Christ, we've been free from the law, and now we are married to him, to Jesus Christ. And This is a glorious thing. Instead of being in a loveless marriage, the law shows no love towards us. The law is a strict and a harsh taskmaster. In Jesus Christ we find one who loves us. One who is gracious. One who has in his mind our greatest good. Even greater than any desires and thoughts about our own good that we may have for ourselves. And so he seeks to pour his love upon us. To lavish it upon us. We've already mentioned in verse 5 of chapter 5. The love of God has flooded our souls. And this is but the beginning of God's love shown towards those who believe. But then we find, Paul mentions it here, that as in a normal marriage, you have fruit. You are all examples of such fruit. When people get married, generally, not always, but generally, there is offspring. There are children. And when we were married to the law, there were offspring. There were fruit. And that fruit was fruit to death. That's what he says in verse 5. The passions of sins aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit, to bear children for death. Our actions, our deeds, our attitudes, everything about us, that was the offspring of our marriage to the law. And as a result, death. But our marriage to Jesus Christ produces different children that we should bear fruit to God. Now remember this is an illustration, we are not taking this literally, but bearing fruit for God, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness, the fruit of love to God, the fruit of love to our fellow men, the fruit of doing what God has said, the fruit of doing what is right. And so now we find that for the believer in Jesus Christ, he is freed from the law. There is freedom. And because he's freed from the law, the stimulus to sin has gone. We were married to the law. The passions of sins were aroused by the law. But now the law's gone. been done away with in Christ. We're freed from it. And so now there's no longer the stimulus to sin. There's, if you like, the sign's been taken off the grass. The stimulus isn't there to read some requirement, some commandment, and automatically sin within says, I'm going to do the opposite. Rather now we live in the Spirit. We live united to Christ. We love our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you get in any good marriage, and this is the best of all marriages, you want to do what the other person wants. You want to please them. You want them to be pleased with you. And so therefore, we now do what the law requires, but we don't do what the law requires because the law says it. We do it because we want to please the one we're married to. We want to please Jesus Christ. So we live no longer according to the letter of the law, in the letter of the law. But we live in the newness of the spirit. That's what he says in verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to that, to what we were held by. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We obey God out of love for God, not out of duty. But there may be occasions when our love grows cold and we have to grit our teeth and say, I will do this, because God says so. But at root, our motivation is our love for God, our gratitude to God, desiring to please God. So under grace, yes, we are freed from the law. But we are not freed from the Law in order to sin, we are freed from the Law in order to do what is right and pleasing to Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a few questions, to help you to apply this to yourselves. Question one, to whom are you married? Are you married to the Law, or are you married to Jesus Christ? Who is your partner? The law or Christ? Which one are you desiring to serve? Which one are you seeking to serve? Are you seeking to serve the law or are you seeking to serve Christ? The law will bring death to you. Christ will bring you joy and peace and life. What children are you producing? What is the fruit of your marriage? Because this will indicate who you are married to. Are you producing sin? Or are you producing righteousness? Are there any among you? Or are any of your friends who you know? And you can see that they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Are you doing things that you shouldn't be doing? Are you finding that it is difficult to put off these things and to stop doing them? I mentioned about someone I knew of some years ago in Liverpool. And the Christian Union were very concerned about him because he was openly immoral. And his response was, I can't help it problem with him was that the power of sin had not been broken he was still married to the law and that was stimulating within his sinful heart evil desires which became evil practices are you like that? are there things that you do and we're not just talking about sexual matters, we're talking about everything are there things that you do that you find you can't stop doing it but you know it's wrong could it be you're still married to the law rather than married to Jesus Christ what are your motivations in life who are you trying to please are you trying to please yourself or someone else in this world or are you trying to please Jesus Christ if you are trying to please Jesus Christ you will be devouring this book seeking to discover what it says seeking to discover what he requires of you that you might do the things that you know will please him if you are not seeking to please Jesus Christ then you can't be married to him you must still be married to the Lord you must still be in bondage to sin and you may be calling yourself a Christian but you're deluding yourself and it's easy to delude yourself and it's easy to delude other people but you cannot delude God who are you trying to please? What is your inmost motivation? Now what we've seen here this morning should be liberating and a joyous thing to think that no longer are we in bondage to all these Old Testament regulations. But now we can live for Christ. And instead of worrying about whether or not we're wearing Marks and Spencer shirts. Most of you probably won't understand what I mean. But there is a prohibition in Leviticus chapter 19 about wearing Marks and Spencer shirts. Amongst other things. You shall not wear clothing made from mixed fibre. This is polyester and cotton shirt. The law forbids it. We're free from those sort of things. Now we live for Christ. Are you living for Christ? Ask yourself the question. Ask one another the question. Don't just sit there and think through a banch of yourself, but talk to each other. Say to each other, Well, you know me, what do you think? What do you observe? And be prepared for some unpleasant answers and be prepared to give unpleasant answers as well because that will be helpful not because you want to think now is my chance to get back at them but because you think now is my chance to help them and to do them some good and then finally some of you might be thinking but isn't this rather demeaning to the law of God aren't you running down the law of God and saying that the law of God well really the problem is the law and surely that's not right surely the law is good well if you want to know the answer to that, you'll have to come back next week because that's the next objection that Paul deals with that's the very thing that he says in verse 7 what shall we say then is the law sin certainly not and then he explains what the law's function and purpose is and may these things help us all to understand our own situation and condition and stimulate us not to serve the law but to serve Jesus Christ, that we might be godly people and holy people and please the one who has saved us.